Welcome to Periferias, a podcast highlighting the diverse and interdisciplinary voices that make up the King Juan Carlos I of Spain Center here at New York University. I'm your host, Laura Kite. On today's episode, a conversation with Luis Francia, poet, playwright, teacher, and co-chair of SULO, the Philippine Studies Initiative at NYU. Yeah, okay, well, maybe the best way to begin is how did I wind up at NYU? Because mm-hmm. I certainly didn't intend to be a teacher. Um, at the time when I first started teaching here, this was, I think, in 2000, um, I was working as an associate or assistant editor at The Village Voice part-time. And so I did have time, and the head of the Asian Pacific American Institute at the time, Jack Chen, um, whom I knew, asked me if I wanted to teach a language course. I said, sure. It seemed easy enough, um, since I'm fluent in both languages, and so I accepted the gig. So anyway, I've been teaching here, intermediate uh, Filipino one and two uh, since I guess it's two decades now Um, but in the meantime of course I have my own work separate from academe I mean I don't consider myself an academic I mean my approach to language has been mainly as a writer so I use that when I teach the language to the students were mostly Filipino-American. Some of them were born in the Philippines but came here when they were really young. Some of them came over having finished high school, so they're actually pretty good in spoken, uh, in speaking it, but not necessarily in knowing the formal structures. So at any rate, in the course, um, I give them quite a bit of translation. It forces them to think bilingually. We read short, I guess you'd call it flash fiction, but in Filipino. Mm -hmm. And then of course we have grammar. I've been using my skills as a writer in the way that I teach um, the language, you know, so it's also a way of reintroducing those who came over at a really young age to the culture that their parents grew up with. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to understand that since we were a colony, a lot of the parents who migrate here don't necessarily want their children to speak the language of, the, of, their, of their home because they say, you're here. You need to assimilate. Mm-hmm. So there's the burden of history that many of my students, um, consciously or not, want to eject. And, and so it's a way of exploring their parents' background as well as reconnecting to maybe unimagined community, as Benedict Anderson would put it. So anyway, what do you feel about the concept of or the utilization of heritage speaker as a category? We use that in Spanish language pedagogy. Do you feel that that actually ex- expresses who these students are and their experience mm, with learning? Yes and no. I mean, because heritage uh, it's kind of a fancy word 
you know, I mean, it's not, because when I think of heritage, I think of this grandiloquent structure that they, like a mansion you move into. And so I find it problematic. I just treat it as a language that they may have spoken when they were kids, or maybe not, because you have to understand the Philippines is an archipelago, and Filipino, which is really Tagalog, which is the main language, because the capital is in Manila, and the language of that region is Tagalog. And that's become identical, or the other way around, Filipinas become identical with Tagalog. It's kind of like Spain, you have Castilian, and you have the Basque region, you know, and I'm sure there are other languages. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the students, their parents come from different regions of the Philippines. So you might technically consider them heritage speakers because officially their parents were supposed to learn what they would have considered the dominant language, you know, because certain areas of the Philippines view Manila as the imperial capital. You know, it's kind of a replication of power structures everywhere. So yeah, I mean, so I don't, I don't really use that term. I think that it's beautiful that you refer to language as a mansion that you move into, or that language is a is a is a place like a house. Yeah. And maybe we can talk a little bit now about the your islands, um, Manila, Manhattan. You've lived here now for Forever. a very long time. <laughs> um, what do I these have places my scars. mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've lived Are here. you a New Yorker now? <laughs> I absolutely. You know, there's a classic essay by I think Edmund Wilson. He writes about the three types of New York, the New York of those who were born here. And they don't really, from his point of view, appreciate it because they're used to it, right? And there's the uh, transplant from within the states who come to New York because they've heard about it. it's alluring. And then there's the immigrant, you know, the one who is born overseas. And he says that uh, the second and the third are the ones who make New York because they can see what the native New Yorker may not see and they come with a pain in their heart and a longing. I read that essay when I first arrived and I said this is describes accurately my feeling. I am a New Yorker in that sense of one who claims it, who may not have been born here but who can navigate you know, the different waterways and pathways, metaphorically and literally, that constitute this metropolis. As somebody who comes here, who is a person of color, but also a former colonial subject, not formally because I was born when we were already independent, but the burden, and in some ways the benediction of having been a colonized object, but it forces one to explore uh, the different infrastructures, metaphorical, spiritual, political, social, that make up, say, my context and the context of various peoples and students, you know. Uh, I guess this is a roundabout way, but yeah, I'm a New Yorker. Very much so. Yeah. You know.
Did you want to speak a little bit about mestizaje and the figure of the mestizo? Thinking about the global Pacific, and mm. I'd like to hear you also speak a little bit about how you feel about language geographies also potentially connected to that question of the mestizo and the mestizaje. Yeah, as a that's a really interesting question. And last Friday we were talking about this with Vince Diaz, the guest speaker from Minnesota. One of the faculty co-teachers for this course is Puerto Rican. So she has a very different idea of mestizaje from what in the Philippines we would consider mestizaje and Vince, originally from Guam, uh, what his views were. And in the Philippines, being mestizo, ordinarily if you tell somebody from the Philippines that somebody is mestizo, they will immediately link it to Spain, you know, because it's a Spanish word. And mestizos in the hierarchy in the Philippines occupy a higher spot. As I think you'll find in Latin America, the closer you are to the looks of the former colonizer, meaning white, um, the better your chances are in terms of mobility, but there are also different types of mestizo. There's the Chinese mestizo and there's the Afro-Filipino. Those two kinds of mestizo-ness are not necessarily socially desirable. So there's a spectrum of mestizaje in the Philippines that may be absent in Puerto Rico or Latin America. Although Laura did say in Mexico, they also kind of exclude the Chinese mestizos, um, if, if I was hearing her right. When you qualify and say, so-and-so is a Chinese mestizo, it kind of devalues their status as mestizo. But if you were just to say, Luis is mestizo, which I am, then people assume immediately certain things about me, that I'm privileged, that you know I have certain education, an educational pedigree, that you know I will have it easier. So it's kind of the equivalent of white privilege here. But the Chinese mestizos, in fact, are now in positions of social and political prominence in the Philippines. So there's a kind of overturning so that in the world of business in the Philippines, the Chinese and the Spanish mestizos basically compete and they don't like one another. And so that to me is interesting, you know, because they kind of position themselves as both within, you know, the proto-Malay main racial framework and without, you know, for them is the Chinese connection and for the, we have families descended from the Spanish colonizers who are still, many of them still have dual Spanish citizenship. And so, and then you have the tribes who are also seen as Filipino, but kind of beneath. So it's a very complex portrait when you talk of mestizaje.
in the Philippines, you know. Um, yes, the other factor that I'm really interested in is Catholicism. Yeah. Not to <laughs> jump ahead, but in Black Henry, I was just so intrigued by the way that you're able to bring in these ideas about ritual and conversion, the Eucharist. You know, this is a particular interest to me as an early modernist. Were you but, raised as a Catholic? No, but um, hmm. since I studied Catholic Iberia, Counter-Reformation, right. it's... Catholicism is deep. And from what I understand, or the popular conception, is that uh, the Philippines are one of the most prominently Catholic nations in the modern world. So what role does that also have in the construction of, of the mestizo figure and mestizaje, or in your own personal feelings about identity? Hmm. Very good question. Um, you know, I always say uh, there are three... Uh, marks of Spanish Hispanization the fiesta the siesta and la iglesia <laughs> and I always say the last is my least favorite the church because the church has always been maybe it's changed um, but basically identified with the colonial state during the Spanish colonial era which lasted for 333 years there was no distinction between church and state. In fact, you could say that the friarlocracy, um, I'm not sure if I got that word correct. I love it though. <laughs> they were the dominant power. Why? Because when they were assigned to the Philippines, I think this was the Franciscans, the Augustinians, the Benedictines, the Jesuits are a separate story because they were never friars. The Jesuits are always a separate story. Yeah. <laughs> For good and bad. Um, they were there for the long haul, whereas the colonial officials, the, the governor general and the administrative bureaucrats, they were there for maybe five years. So the friars knew they were in power, they, were, they could ignore the decrease the decrees from the royal court. To give you an example, in I think 1861, Madrid decreed that the schools in the Las Islas Filipina should teach Spanish to the Indios, you know, the derogatory term for Filipinos. And the friars ignored it. You know, they said, well, you know, why do they need to learn Spanish? They might think they are equal. So there was this racial bias against the Indios learning the mother what the Spanish considered a superior tongue. Um, and they could do that because Spain and the king were far away and God was even further away. And the civil administration officials couldn't do anything because um, they would be, the friars would write the king or council that oversaw the college and say, listen, this governor general is a real pain. He doesn't know what he's doing. Please recall him. And very often uh, they would, you know, get their wish. So the friars were a dominant power. And so you have this <clears throat> situation where <clears throat> at the end of 333 years, I think only 5 to 7% of the population could speak and write Spanish. So whenever I meet people, say from Latin America, they say, hey, Luis, ¿qué pasa? ¿Por qué no hablas español? And I say, yeah, I speak enough. 
And then they say, but so many Filipinos don't. Then I'll have to explain. It's because of the friars. They didn't want us to learn Spanish. So when the U.S. enters the, Colo the Great Game, as it was then known, they were smart enough to say, okay, we will teach you our tongue, English. We will open up the floodgates so that modernity will enhance your lives. You know, because they knew that part of the resentment of the Filipinos, you know, part of the reason for the revolution in 1896 was this stand of this racial uh, prejudice against the Indians. And so the U.S. formally said, we're all brothers. And of course, we know that it was just a ploy to win over the revolutionaries and ally and get them as ally against Spain, you know, the Spanish-American War, which then becomes the Philippine-American War, which I hope you're aware of. Yes, the okay. layered fictions, Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, a lot of Americans don't know that the Philippines became a colony, not so much because of the Spanish-American War, but because of the Philippine-American War, which lasted for until 1913. It was more brutal and savage in the Philippines than the Spanish-American War. That's why Spanish lingers on in Filipino. We have so many words in Filipino that are really um, what we would say long words, but they're part and parcel of Filipino now. Like we would say pantalon, sapatos, medias. You know, and it didn't mean we didn't have pants or shoes, but the weight of Spanish um, linguistic dominance meant that the native word for pants, which is salawal, was basically excluded from the dictionaries and pantalon. You know, so many items that kind of identified the Filipino as being modern reflect the Spanish occupation. So just looking at the language, you can see the different pathways from different languages. And so Spanish lives on in Filipino, but very few Filipinos can speak Spanish as Spanish. But the Spanish-descended families still speak. They pride themselves on speaking Spanish, which is great, but for many of them, it's a way of kind of distancing themselves from the masses, or what we call the masa. There's a question there also that you have a Spanish-derived last name, just like many Filipino people do. Choosing whether you want to do, how do you, I'm not actually sure how to say in, in English, like voz inglesa or voz española, like if you pronounce it the uh, Spanish way or the English way. You know, I've thought of that and we pronounce it, well, we, you know, my family pronounces it the Spanish way, Francia. You know, like for, in, and for a lot of Filipinos, they had to forego their pre-Hispanic surnames because when you underwent conversion to Catholicism and you were baptized, you had to choose from a register your Catholic name, which invariably was Spanish. 
And so the native name was consigned to the dustbin of history. However, in our case, we did have, I think, my great-great-grandfather on my father's side did come from Spain. And I imagine he was a poor, you know, rural man thinking I can make myself rich in the colonies. The same way that many went to Latin America. So he came and being Spanish, he acquired a lot of land from what my father was telling me and became fabulously rich, but which my grandfather lost, <laughs> unfortunately. He, my grandfather was, you know, mestizo and a landowner, but he was a gambler and he was very generous with his friends. If his friends borrowed money, he said, okay, and he never collected. So to cover his own debts, he borrowed money from this family known for money lending. They were usurers and he couldn't pay back. So they would get a piece of land until eventually most of the land that he had inherited was gone. And so my father, when he was growing up for a while, was really rich. (laughs) His father started losing the lands because of gambling and being generous. He wound up, you know, ordinary middle class. Um, And there's an interesting story when I was in university. I dated a young woman whose family was that lone sharking family. <laughs> and when my aunt found out, she said, don't you dare date that girl. I said, why? Her family took our lands. So this was happening like in the, in the interwar period? Um, yes. Well, when I started dating, of course, this was in the 60s. But yeah, my grandfather. grandfather kind of started to lose the lands. Yeah, so I could have been rich and probably an asshole, (laughs) you know, a warlord. Of course. course. (laughs) We can maybe take a turn toward talking a little bit more specifically about your work. Sure. Um, Maybe we can begin talking about Tattered Boat. One of the difficult things about um, naming a volume of poems is, you know, because poetry is, say, different, say, from a novel. You, know, you have a novel with a unifying theme and narrative, whereas poetry, at least the way I approach it, is very different. You have multiple works that may reflect different perspectives. Um, and so <clears throat> I said, well, what kind of, what should I call the book? <clears throat> and there's a poem in here where the line, one of the lines includes tattered boat. And I said, oh, well, you know, book of poetry is a kind of boat. You know, tattered means uh, frayed, used, not in good shape. And that could reflect my life, my navigation through the rights and tribulations, the trials and tribulations of living. And people always ask me, hey, Luis, you know, why Tattered Boat? I said, well, you know, read the book. Well, I had wondered, I haven't read the entire collection, um, but I had wondered because for me, the adjective tattered really invokes 
fabrics and yeah. clothing. And then I think that's just a really beautiful juxtaposition thinking about a structure that is solid and that's meant to hold a being in water, right? That's meant to float. The tatteredness combining with that, that invocation of fabric I thought was... That's a lovely I'm not sure if that's what yeah, you were well, thinking. Well, actually, because, you know, like, for instance, this weather I've had for like 20 years, it's an Irish fisherman's weather. Fred gave it and it has, you know, it's kind of holes that you don't necessarily see. So it's tattered, but I love it. Yeah. You know, because it's been with me um, since 2000, I believe. So, yeah. So I'm glad you pointed that out. So anyway, this is the poem, Tattered Boat. Bird sang, I tried singing back, took the littlest part. Bird sang sharper and I turned away. Is my dementia in overdrive or do I simply take to heart the bleak notes of a song? I can lie about having known better things and now know only disappointment. I sit with my coffee and wish the bird would fly away for its music is odd though I am older now and odder still. An other bent inside himself the past in ribbons, mourning and myself, a tattered boat adrift on a non-existent river. That's tattered boat. There's another point, if we're going with the aquatic imagery. Uh, this one actually I wrote because of the this horrific storm we had that was the strongest storm so far in the 21st century it, Yolanda it was um, like 200 miles per hour winds and as you as you may know the Philippines holds the dubious world records for the number of typhoons every year 20 or 21 on the average spring from this part of the Pacific in the uh, central part and always it will be horrific but this particular storm was beyond the pale and okay it's called gathering storm gathering storm winds of sound will blow down your walls to render your rooms as desolate as the moors who can contain the storm that gathers each day from the multitudes of mouths, the mouths of those who have loved and bled and wept? Each name rides the hurricane, each name brings an echo, a wound that mothers a republic of nothingness. I would wish to cut my body into multitudes and to every part add a tongue to utter all their names. I would wish my body into innumerable cathedrals, every strand of hair a shrine for all who have fallen. I would wish my body to arise each time, hosts of them manifold and myriad in their colors, God beautiful, blood red in the fire winds, emerald green in the steering breeze, indigo under a blossoming sky, in a communion that beckons growth. The sounds that blow down your walls will be the murmurs of gardens 
digging deep to embrace the dead with their roots, to erect cities of bone and memory, to send out the tendrils of an epistemology, the epistemology of refusal, a refusal to die even when we are dead. I'd like to talk about two things. I'd like you to, to expand for our listeners what you mean by epistemology and how you're utilizing this concept inside the poem. Okay. Um, my choice of words often rides on the sound, not necessarily yeah. on the spelling. I mean, not necessarily on the meaning. So I thought epistemology sounded good. <laughs> and... It's the way that I approach poetry as distinct from a prose mentality. A prose, let's say, a prose writer um, will have a clearly defined map from A to C going through B. As a poet, I have no idea where I'll wind up. I wish to start from a word or a phrase and in this case remembering back you know I was struck by the ferocity of the storm but then you can also read the poem as a political um, recalling of the people who die in the Philippines because of different kinds of storms the storm of poverty of political violence as well as physical storms you know so I thought epistemology sounds nice and it also kind of covers hints at different layers of meaning it brings to mind what I think T.S. Eliot once said you can appreciate a poem even before you understand it and you kind of reverse engineer that. I will like something, even if I don't know why, but I'll say I'll go with it. I don't need to know the A's and the B's and everything rational about the choice. If I feel good, I'll go with it. Then later on, I'll say, okay, I can look at it and say, why did I choose that? And invariably, I'll say, I liked it, you know, I mean... But yeah, in that word, I like the sound. Yeah, Yeah. and I I love that that's your answer because part of what I loved about the appearance of epistemology of refusal, it's sort of, we're going through the poem and I'm really in this bodily space with you with the repetition of, I would wish that my body, I would wish that my body, and in no way as a listener am I expecting to then hear epistemology of refusal. (laughs) And it hits us both in terms of the sound and in terms of the the conceptual weight at the end. Do you ever write? Um, Well, I'm writing my dissertation, (laughs) but I love poetry. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that would be my next question too, if you want to talk a little bit, connecting back to the um, too tattered about the titular poem that you read first about the body and embodiment. I really caught on to the image of the bended over body. And then here you have all of these desires that you're locating in your mm-hmm. own body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, in tattered boat, I refer to the inner body that may be very different 
from say the upright body so in in the case of tattered boat it's kind of a body within me that's kind of bent and unsure maybe fetal um, and I leave it to the reader to imagine why the body is bent what causes that body within the poet or the speaker because the speaker may not always be the poet himself you know there's a kind of distancing and so yeah I like to leave space for the reader to for the reader's imagination to come in and to work you know and I don't want to lay everything out you know and for me that's the beauty of poetry it forces the reader to work and if they're willing to work, then hopefully there'll be a reward. Perhaps we can turn now to your recently debuted play, Black Henry. Our listeners are going to need some context. There's a little bit about the story, and right. I guess my opening question would be, why did you take on this huge canonical story? For me, the, the conquistas, these epics, that's, it's brave, it's very daring. What were your goals and, and why? Yeah, well, I have a Yahoo email account. <clears throat> and the name I use for that is Lapu Lapu. Who was the man who slew Magellan? Or it was his army that slew Magellan and a number of the conquistadors. I've always had that name. Before, I think, 2000, I read the journals of Pigafetta. Now, Pigafetta accompanied Magellan on that historic uh, circumnavigation, and he survived. <clears throat> and it's through his journals that we learn most of what we know about that uh, expedition. And when Magellan and the ships, by then, the five ships are down to three, they reached the Philippines in of course, it wasn't known as the Philippines then, 1521, 500 years ago, in March of 1521. Magellan had a slave, a Malay slave, whose Christian name was Enrique. Suddenly, he makes an appearance in Pigafetta's journals because it turns out he speaks the language of Cebu, the island where they dock for, I think, six weeks. And he looks like the islanders, you know. And in the play, of course, Magellan tells Enrique, Enrique, this is wonderful. You look like them. You speak the language. And he doesn't go to the logical conclusion, which is, maybe you came from here. And Enrique by 1521, had been Magellan's slave for 10 years. He had been bought in Malacca, which is in Malaysia, which is west of the Philippines. Malacca had the famous slave market. So you had these raider ships that went through Southeast Asia and raided coastal towns and took their captives to Malacca, the slave market. 
they were commodities. Yeah, this is important context because I don't think that many listeners are aware of a slave trade happening in the Indian Ocean in that area. Yeah. It's yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. not a, a very well documented. Absolutely. And the Portuguese were in Goa at that time and Magellan and uh, an expedition went to Malacca. I believe they attacked it and there was a slave market and he takes Enrique, you know, young man, teenager, he becomes his personal slave body man, I guess, in today's terms, because he has him baptized. And Enrique goes with him to Europe, learned Spanish, probably spoke Portuguese, and in a way becomes the modern Filipino, if we assume, and we have quite a bit of basis for assuming, he originally came from Cebu, which is the central part of the Philippines. Ten years after, he arrives and says, hey, these people, they look like me, I speak their language. It's bringing back memories of the years that when I was growing up. He becomes a kind of Malinche. He becomes the bridge between the conquistadors and the native tribes in Cebu. And without him, uh, it would have been a, probably a very different story. So in Pigafetta's journals, he becomes prominent. But once the Magellan is slain in that fateful encounter, and what happens is that Magellan is thinking, I can take over, you know, uh, the Pope basically divided the globe into two. I believe the western part was for Spain and the eastern part for Portugal or vice versa. Tordesillas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and basically disregarding any, any of the other nations, right? So he said, yeah, you know, I, I have permission, I'm taking over. And he was a overzealous Catholic. And he tells the chieftain of Cebu, if you ally with me, I can take care of your opponent, Lapu-Lapu, my email name, because <clears throat> the two were at odds. So Humabun, out of uh, strategic uh, gain says, okay, let's ally, I'll convert. So he converts, he and his queen and the court convert to Christianity. For Humabon, it's purely utilitarian. But for the queen, she begins to really dig the religion because it's a very different approach. Okay, but that's kind of in the background. So Magellan says, you know, I can take care of your foe, Lapu-Lapu. And Humabon says, well, I can give you a thousand warriors. And Magellan says, cool it, my men, each one of them is worth a hundred of yours, which is insulting. <laughs> this is about to go sideways for him. <laughs> yeah, and Humabon is thinking, okay, you asshole, go ahead, you know, my men will just watch. You know, so they go, and the captains of Magellan, you know, the three other captains say, oh yeah, 
this is not such a good idea. We're just coming here for trade to get to get spices. Why do we need to involve ourselves in this intra-tribal warfare? And Magellan say, hey, listen, if we don't show them who's boss, they're not gonna listen to us. So he gets 60 volunteers because he said, nobody has to come with me. I just want volunteers. And of course, Enrique goes along. And of course, you know, is he a traitor? Is he working against his own people? By then, he's formed this, and there's a trait with Filipinos, they become very loyal. And Magellan, uh, it's implied, treats him quite well. Because in the will of Magellan, he says, on my death, you will be a free man, and you will be given 10,000 maravedis, which is a substantial sum. Quite a sum of money. Yeah. So he was loyal. Magellan, because he was, you know, like maybe 15, and Magellan becomes his father figure, right? Sure. I think also, um, if I'm remembering the journey correctly, they had just forged themselves in the crucible of that journey across Absolutely. the Pacific, they, where they almost starved to death, nobody had any idea where they were. It was, right. it was almost a year, if I remember right. Six months. That would make you bond with anyone. <laughs> I yeah. would think, thinking about the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, what we're undergoing is nothing. <laughs> I mean, they had to eat rats, drink their urine, capture cigarettes. You know, it was horrible. Yeah. And they get to the Philippines, and there's a tradition of hospitality in the islands for the first time. It's unlike, say, many places along the way, you know, they had to fight whoever the uh, indigenous tribes were. But the Filipinos said, hey, we have a lot, you know, you know, we can share, it was great. And he takes advantage of that, Magellan takes advantage of that. So Enrique is in the position of owing a lot to Magellan, and he can see also this intra-ethnic rivalry brewing, so he's not sure, you know. But when Magellan is killed, his successor refuses to let Enrique free. He refuses to follow the will. Because he says, as long as I'm the captain and commander and we're on this boat, I am your master and you will still be a slave. So Enrique basically says, well, fuck you, you know, I don't owe you anything. But he doesn't say that. He says, okay. He plays along, but then, you know, in the play, he hatches this revenge with Humabon because by then Humabon realizes Magellan is ordinary. He's not some huge, not like the way that Moctezuma viewed Cortes as a kind of semi-divine figure, right, on a white horse. Humabon is down there and he says, okay, what do you plan? And he says, we have a dinner, invite them to bid them farewell on their long voyage and then we strike and that's how the play culminates and then at the end of course he's buried with islamic prayers but queen in another scene that ends the play she's seen with the priest who stayed behind and they're saying the lord's prayer and she's you know properly she's kneeling and really means what she's saying. So there's the reference 
to the Christianization that's going to come. So Enrique becomes not only the prototype of the modern Philippine, because he learns several languages, he becomes the prototype of the colonial subject, and he becomes the first overseas Filipino worker. And you know, the merchant marine, 40 to 60% of the crew are made up of Filipinos on cruise ships, on commercial containers, they're Filipino. So there's a whole tradition of seafaring. And, you know, I joke with my friends, Enrique didn't know he was coming back to the Philippines, so he didn't bring any homecoming goods. <laughs> you know, because Filipinos, if you know any, when they go back home, they have this huge, what we call, balibayan boxes, full of whatever, goods, candy, electronic apparatuses, you know, as welcoming gifts. So, you know, he didn't know he was returning to where he most likely came from. And I'm not the only one saying that. Uh, I think a number of historians are saying he probably was the first to circumnavigate the world. Because Magellan is killed and 18 people make it back. But before then, Enrique comes back to where he was raised because he speaks the language and he looks like them. So for you, this uh, taking on this grand narrative has to do with the connections that you feel resonate with the experience of Filipino diaspora today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, I didn't want to load it with, you know, you have to also stay away from making it propagandistic. I wanted the story to survive when it's on that. Even if you didn't know, you know, just the weight of the narrative this man wanting to conquer this territory, the people he deals with who are also using him, and the man in between who's Enrique, and what happens to him when his master dies and the successor, this, you know, has no feelings for his humanity. You know, that's the story, and you can see certain resonances because of the history of colonialism and Christianity yeah. and the diaspora. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with the PBS show Secrets of the Dead? It's one of their big... They had that Magellan. Would you like to speak about this? Yes. I was so disappointed because... <laughs> they were doing a rewriting. Yeah. But they rewrote the wrong story. Absolutely. And Enrique looks like a 60-year-old man. He's a prayer. And he was like maybe 25 or And 20. the hero is Elgano in the of end. Of course. You know, I was like thinking, yeah, this is so conventional. That story of Enrique was so much more interesting. And the way they portrayed the warriors, um, they're relying, I think, on Pigafetta, saying there were a thousand men. But oh, did he go and count them? You know, they were only 60. And certainly Lapu-Lapu's men were more numerous. But they didn't have to be a thousand because these guys were... Warriors, they knew the martial arts. They knew their own land. Yeah, and what they did was they aimed, because, you know, the Magellan's men wore breast mail, right, and helmet. So they aimed for the legs and the neck. And they were, the Lapu-Lapu's men were fleet. They were not burdened by armor, so they could run and dodge. So they went slashing. So they had to retreat. 
you know, so yeah, it was too bad. <laughs> it was too bad because I just love that, uh, I mean, maybe historically we will never have the total evidence to say that Enrique was the first person to truly circumnavigate the globe, but I think we can say with certainty that the first person to circumnavigate the globe was definitely a person of color, and that person yeah. was probably enslaved. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah, and you know, um, that's one reason I wanted to do the play. For episode notes, links, transcripts, and more, visit our website at kjcc.org slash initiatives slash periferias dash the dash podcast. That's P-E-R-F-E-R-I-A-S. Thank you for listening.